turn to the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we're going to read just uh, a few verses, and hopefully you have your sermon notes right in front of you to follow along on the uh, few points, Ephesians chapter 6, and verse 10 through to 13. It says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So why does Paul want us to know this? So in the light of this, verse 13, they therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So we've been working through just just week by week in the last four weeks some key passages in Ephesians. And now Paul says, finally. He says, "This this is where we're getting to. This is the point that I've been leading to. And we've heard... He said, he's prayed, you are chosen, you are treasured, you are empowered people in Christ. You have access to God himself. You are loved, you are in his presence, you have the weight of his glory on your life. And we, as we heard last week, should be living controversial lives. We should be lives where it is different. We should be speaking different, acting different, and that's going to upset people. That's going to make people go, well, surely that can't be the case. The Bible can't say that, and we're not called to look at the Bible through a lens that makes sense to us or seems logical to us in our experience. We look at the Bible through what it actually says, and the Bible says some things that culturally are controversial. So Paul now tells us, That if we are going to be, as I said last week, echoes of the eternal and the divine, that that if we're going to live this controversial life, you can expect to attract attention. And not the good time attention. You see, Paul makes it really clear. He says, you are in enemy territory. You have things stacked up against you. The reality of the situation is we as a church and as people in the church, I'm going to say something that might sound strange to some of you who aren't maybe used to coming each week or are still thinking through what Christianity actually means. I'm going to say some strange things to you today. We're going to be talking about evil. We're going to be talking about principalities. We're going to be talking about authorities that are stacked up against, that we're in an enemy territory. We're going to be using language that sounds warlike and enemy-like, and you're going to be going, this is strange. The reality is this. If we just took stock just for a few minutes, whether you come to church regularly or not, or whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, or whether wherever you are at life, one thing that we know, one thing that we resonate with to be the truth is that we know Paul is correct. We know that we live in the time that seems to be saturated with evil. Now, I'm not just talking about some evil that some people might say is, well, it depends on your determination of what is evil. Then, human speaking, there is evil going on in the world, and we all recognize it, we see it, we watch it, we we hear about it. I gave you some examples last week of some of the horrendous things that happen in our society. We are in a struggle. You don't need to read the Bible to know that that's the truth. We live in a struggle. We're in enemy territory, Paul says. As Christians, we know this to be true. 
I wonder how many of you have experienced the feeling where one thing after another just seems to go wrong. It's just like, give me a break. Like you just get through one thing and something else comes and hits you. And then you get through that and then something else hits you. And then there's something else. This, this, uh, there's this uh, people seeming to just dislike you or not like you just because you breathe. You know, just because you exist. They don't even put their finger on what it is that they don't like about you. But it's, it's I can tell you, it's Christ in you. It's Jesus in you. It's controversial. You're in enemy territory. Maybe there's family issues, health issues that keep rearing their heads. Things that just continually seem to hit you and bombard you. And, and Paul is saying, you need to understand you're in enemy territory. You are at war. This is combat. This is, this is what it's like. If we take ourselves out of the picture for a second, so go from micro to, from ourselves to macro and look globally, well, you can see that there is evil in this world. World events, changing cultural mindsets, acceptance of practices and things that only a few years ago would not have been accepted and would not have been uh, allowed. Continually changing and failing social initiatives, money being thrown at the same problem year after year with no change because the change needs to happen in the heart of man and woman. So you can look at politics, you can look at social initiatives and all they're doing is putting band-aids on things that really are internal diseases. And we live in this. And and Paul says that you need to understand that as Christians, this is the world that you live in. And even if you are not fully believing what the Bible, you just need to lift up your eyes and you need to unplug your ears to see that there is evil in this world. And the Bible is not silent about it. Because Paul, after all these chapters, is now getting into the nitty-gritty and saying, okay, in the light of all this, he, he says, you are empowered. Christian, you are chosen. You are treasured. You have the presence of God. You are loved by Jesus. You have access to God Almighty Himself. You have the weight of His glory in your life. You will be controversial. So here's what you need to know in the light of all this. And we're just going to look at three things briefly today that I want you to know that I see in this scripture. And the verse 10 starts us off. It says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The first thing I want us to understand and Paul is telling us is combat always follows cause. If you have a cause in your life, if you are seeking to be strong in the Lord, then there will be combat that follows. When you submit to Jesus, you gain access to God, but you also gain access to his enemies. Suddenly, as a Christian and as a new Christian, you now are no longer fighting against the things that you see and hear. You are fighting against a whole other array and army of evil that you weren't fighting against before. Many times I've had new Christians come to me after that beautiful, wonderful honeymoon period where they're kind of feeling like they can walk on the Okanagan Lake quite easily and just Jesus is amazing and then life slams into their soul, takes their breath away and they go, whoa, hang on a second. I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, actually you did. You literally signed up for this army. You literally submitted to the captain of the hosts. And his name is Jesus. 
This is the life that you can expect to live. In fact, the Bible's pretty clear that this, this sense of struggle, this sense of tension, this sense of feeling uncomfortable, this sense of, man, you know, I, I'm not sure whether I, I, there's just this, uh, this combat internally, is actually as much of an indicator of your faith in Jesus than the joy and the peace and the love and all the other things that are so beautiful and wonderful benefits of Jesus, for sure, But the struggle and the tension and the combat is as equally an important indication of your faith in Jesus. For pretty simple reasons. If you weren't aware, if there was no struggle, then there would be no Spirit of God in your life. There'd be nothing that kind of creates that friction. You you wouldn't even be noticing it. The fact that you are noticing this combat outside of you and inside of you is an indicator of your faith. So be encouraged. Be encouraged that life sucks sometimes. No amens to that one. Because that itself is a sign of Jesus Christ being living and evident in your life. I've said this to you before, but I remember when I was 19, 20, being mentored by my pastor. And I was at university and training to be a teacher. But I, I regularly spent time with my pastor for seven years. He committed himself to me. And he really was a prince of preachers. And, and uh, he, he passed away 15 years ago. I know because my son Luke is Luke Warwick, and, and his, my pastor's name was Warwick, and we named him after uh, Luke after him. He said this, and I've got it written in my Bible, and I've said it to you before. He said, Glenn, make it your aim to be famous in hell. Now, I don't know if that was his quote or he was quoting somebody else. I don't care. But I remember it hitting me. Because when you're a Christian, when you have Jesus in your life, we should be living in such a way where we can't be ignored. And as much as it's exciting and lovely and, and encouraging and championing to speak about it in church, when you go through those doors out into the real world, it's tough. It's hard. The Bible is insistent that when you become a Christian, combat follows. Combat follows cause. And that's the principle in the world too. If you have a strong cause or a strong feeling towards uh, something that you believe very passionately about, if you are truly passionate about that, you can expect to fight for it. Same in the world. But this cause, everything to do with the cause of Christ becomes combat. When you align yourself with Jesus, you gain his enemies. The most simple of things become difficult. The most simple of things, for example... Getting up in the morning and reading your Bible suddenly becomes one of the most impossible tasks of your life. Why is that? It's not a problem cracking open the newspaper or switching the internet or peeling back the layers of your eyelids as soon as you wake up in the morning doing this. For me, it's on this side. Reaching out for the phone, throwing it in front of your face, flicking on to see what notifications you've got from Twitter and Facebook. That's easy. Right? What's Manchester United doing? That's easy. Actually committing yourself to get up and reading the scripture is the most impossible task in the world, it seems. Why is that? Because you have an enemy stacked against you. Because he knows the Christian who has the Bible in one hand, as Spurgeon said, and the newspaper in the other, 
is one of the most dangerous things in the world. A, a Christian who is willing to stand on what the Scripture says and then is willing to actually meet culture with it, you can expect to fight. The sermon I'm sharing with you this morning is the third sermon I wrote this week. Not the third different sermon, the third same sermon. I've lost it twice. Not literally like table flipping lost it, although I did feel that way at one point because I pressed save, but it didn't, lo and behold, save. Now, let me explain something. If you had a PC, I can understand that issue. I'm a Mac user. Things like that don't happen. We get very arrogant about that. Some of you are shaking your heads, and you know it's the Bible truth. It's in there somewhere in the middle. It doesn't happen. So I rewrote my sermon on Wednesday morning, praising Jesus, thanking him all the way. Then I pressed save, and then my screen turned into kind of what looked like hieroglyphics. I really wanted to make it feel like it was satanic symbols, but it wasn't. But it felt that way, and I lost it again. This doesn't happen. It's It's a Mac. The universe hinges on these things. Shouldn't happen. It did. The little simplest of things become difficult. Why? Because you gained an enemy. And his soul ambition is to steal, kill, and destroy you and yours. That's sobering. The Bible says he is like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. When you have a cause, combat follows. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is David and Goliath. And and I, I briefly shared last week one of the reasons why I like David and Goliath. And this really grew in me as I was preparing this message this week. And there's this beautiful scene of David who's this young guy. He's maybe 13, 14, up to about 17 age, uh, years of age. He'd been a shepherd boy looking after the sheep, slowly being trained by God on the hillside. And then he gets anointed as king. And then there's this period of time where he knows he's king. He, he knows the call that he has, but God calls him back to the sheep. This stretched limousine chariot doesn't arrive for him on the morning. And then he goes off to the palace. It's like, no, you're going to be king of Israel now back on that mountain. And then one day, his dad says, would you take these? And it actually says, I love the Bible. It says, take these, these cheese sandwiches to your brothers. They're fighting uh, against the Philistines. And, and so in, in Britain, we'd call them cheese butties. So he takes this pile of cheese butties to his, friend, uh, to his brothers. It actually says cheese. And, and uh, he goes and he meets his, his brothers on the, on the battlefront. But the thing is, is they're not fighting. They're just sat around listening to, Dave, to Goliath who's in the valley. They're on a mountainside watching Goliath who comes out every morning defying uh, God, insulting God, insulting God's people. And he calls Israelites out for a champion for them to go and fight Goliath. And you know the story. If Goliath had won, all of the Israelites would have to become slaves. If the other person, if the Israelites champion won, then all the Philistines would become the Israelites' slaves. And none of the Israelites were willing to fight. Which is interesting because David got told to take this sandwich to his brothers who were fighting. But they're not. They're sat around. So David arrives on the scene, he listens to what Goliath has to say, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and then he starts kicking up a bit of a fuss. This young, arrogant, full of Jesus, full of God, young man starts asking questions. Until eventually his big brother Eliab says, will you just stop? You can almost see, if you've got an older brother, you can, you can picture the image. He's probably giving him a wedgie at the time or something like that. Just stop this nonsense. 
And then David says, and I love the authorized King James Version. says this, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 29. He says this to his brothers. What have I done now? You can imagine that. Goodness sake, what have I done now? And then he says this. Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason? Should I not be speaking out against this Goliath who stands in defiance of what I know to be true about God? Is there not a cause? You see, when David arrived on the scene, he joined this army's cause. And the cause had a common enemy, and the enemy was Goliath. And so as soon as he arrived, he became aligned with this cause. But you see, David didn't back off. He adopted the cause. He started getting irate. He started asking the questions. He didn't shut up like his brothers wanted him to. What he actually did, if you carry on reading, is quite interesting. He kicks up so much fuss, eventually the king calls him in. Can I tell you as a principle, when you stand on the truth of God, people take notice. King calls him in. And then we'll hear in a second how the king tries to help him in his fight. What was interesting is that king looks at David, this young man, and is willing to place on his shoulders all the future of Israel. You see, he saw something in David that he didn't have himself. Because guess who should have been fighting Goliath? The king. King Saul should have been out there. He was hiding in his tent. So he's willing to let this young man go. Why? Because he sees something in this young man. This, this desire to stand on the truth. He had a strength about him. It's interesting as you read this passage. The combat, please listen to this. The combat for the cause did not begin when David faced Goliath. It began with his brother The combat for the cause started with those who he loved and he was closest to. You can expect that if you're willing to stand on the truth, that those who are closest to you are going to be the ones that, first of all, give you the most criticism. And it's whether or not you are willing to continue to stand on the truth until eventually kings and queens and presidents hear, and more importantly, God hears. See, the enemy will use every means at his disposal to kill, steal, lie, and destroy. So my question is this. What is your cause? What is the thing that you are fighting for? And can I tell you what your cause should be? If you're a Christian, your cause is very, very simple. It's Jesus and all that that encompasses. The reason that you get up in the morning, the reason that he gives you breath, the reason that you you do the job or go to the school is for Jesus. Is he your cause? Is he your reason? People won't understand. They'll think you are foolish. They will try and shut you up. They will scoff. And as Paul experienced, he's speaking from experience And he tells you in one passage all the different things that happened to him as a result of the faith that he placed in Jesus Christ. Left for dead, killed, stoned on numerous occasions. As Joel, Pastor Joel said a few weeks ago, you probably wouldn't even be able to look at Paul because of the scarring and the deformity on his face because you can't go through the type of beatings that he went through without it leaving a mark. You see, Paul knew we fight. When you have a cause, combat follows. 
and people won't understand. It's a humorous story, and, but uh, Bono, lead singer of U2, was singing in, in Scotland, and as Bono does often, he's a strong proponent of social justice, and, and uh, he's very passionate. He has a cause, and he's willing to stand on it, and he's willing to be vocal about it. And in the middle of his concert, he was telling this crowd about how for every clap, he got the crowd to clap their hands, and for every clap of their hands, there was somebody at the time in Ethiopia dying. And so right at the back, they were clapping their hands, and then it went quiet. And Donna said, for every clap of your hands, somebody in Africa is dying. And then this Glaswegian yelled out from the audience, well, stop clapping then. People don't get it. People won't understand They won't understand your cause. They'll mock you. A soldier who isn't fighting is either dead or deserted or at rest. I had the opportunity a few years ago to go into what was Yugoslavia just after the fighting in the the Croatian civil war. There was the Croats and the Serbs and and, uh, I had this brilliant opportunity to go in. We flew into Zagreb in Croatia because the the Croats overcame the Serbs and uh, we were going to do this camp for these young people who had a mum who was Croat or a dad who was Croatian and and a a mum or a dad who was Serb and they married because they lived peacefully together for many years but then as a result of this war the families fractured and the Serbs went to live in Serbia and then the Croatians were in, in Croatia and then you've got these children who didn't know where they belonged. Because the Serbs were literally killing their Croat neighbors overnight. It was a horrendous war. Tens of thousands of people died. Hundreds of thousands of refugees. And he had these little children who were neither Serb nor Croat and were homeless. And so this church pulled together and did a church camp. And and I remember going into areas of villages that were completely deserted. There was silence and yet you could feel the presence of the war. It was sobering. You know, Paul is saying to us, you're going into a war zone and it shouldn't be silent. You are soldiers. You are at war. You should have a combat. And if you don't have a combat, you're either dead or you're resting so far behind the lines that you're completely disjointed from the reality of the cause that we're called to. Jesus himself said, Matthew 11, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violence take it by force. Unfortunately, that scripture has been interpreted literally by some. He's talking it in spiritual terms. We should have a heart of determination for the cause. And the commander-in-chief himself said that, and his name is Jesus. He didn't hide behind the lines. He fought himself. He didn't hide in a tent like King Saul. He was the one that faced Goliath. He bore the scars of the battle as he lived and as he died. And he is saying that anyone who has a spiritual life should be aware of the urgency of the course. The only thing we know for sure in life is one thing. Death. That the person next to you is going to die. Unless God decides to come back before that happens, the person next to you is going to die. And you are going to die. It's the only certain thing that we have. Friends, that's our cause. Your neighbors are going to die. Your non-believing co-worker is going to die. 
That's our cause. Our cause is to tell people that their hope is in Jesus Christ, that they will never die. They might die physically, but spiritually your life continues. That eternity can start today. That is our cause. And if we understood the reality of the cause, I think we would find ourselves more in combat, having more awkward conversations, having more conversations filled with urgency because we're more concerned about, we love them more than we love our own sense of, uh, or our lack of embarrassment. We share the gospel. That's the cause. And combat always follows the cause. Number two, notice that Paul leaves us in no doubt as to the reality of the enemy we face. The enemy is real. He talks in detail about principalities and authorities and what this enemy looks like. How is he so sure that this enemy is real? How is he so sure? Like if I, if I, some of you have already had a bit of a jolt. When I talk about hell or Satan... He's done a fantastic job of giving himself a persona that, that looks like Halloween. Cute little kids walking around in, in Satan costumes. Oh, isn't that nice? No, no, no. He wants to kill you, steal from you, and destroy you. Now, granted, some of those elements might come in at Halloween if you don't give them the muff candy. But I, I'm talking in very real terms. If I talk about Satan, some of you right now are going, oh. Really? Demons? Evil? Principality? Authorities? Oh, come on. We're intelligent, aren't we? The supernatural? The reality is this. If you believe in God and you believe in good, you have to, by default, believe in evil. Otherwise, how do you know something's good if you don't know what evil is? Paul believed in Satan and principalities and authorities really for one very simple reason. is because Jesus did. Jesus talked about it. He said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And Paul said, it's good enough for me. And I can point all the scars to prove that it's true. Now I could teach, and I'd, maybe this is one of our midweek things that we could perhaps do in the future and talk about what that actually means and, and Satan and the principalities and the, angel, uh, the angelic hosts that went with him. But the reality is, I just want you to grasp this morning that Paul talks in very real terms that there are authorities, there are cosmic powers, there are things that we do not see at work against you. And some of you, by experience, know that to be true. But why would we object to the supernatural? If we believe in God and we believe in good and we believe in spirituality, we believe in heaven, why would we struggle with this idea of evil? If we believe what Jesus says, we can't say, well, I believe this aspect of Jesus, what Jesus says, because it makes me feel good about myself. But I, I can't believe this aspect because I don't get it. It's not, it's not logical. We can't do that. We have to take it as a package whether or not we understand it fully or not. Jesus said in very real terms that, that Satan is alive. He is well. But can I say just as an aside, he is not omnipotent, which means all-powerful. He is not omniscient, which means he's not everywhere all at the same time. Satan is not here right now and in South Korea. He's one being. Which, if you think about the implications of that, are actually quite significant because it's not Satan attacking you, necessarily. But he does have forces at work on his behalf. But if Jesus said it, is that not good enough for us? 
By what standard do we choose to judge whether what Jesus said is good or not good? In fact, the highest authorities in philosophy themselves would say that you cannot disprove the presence of the supernatural. You would actually get scoffed at to say that you could. That's more of an an enlightenment type thinking. Modern thinking is you can't actually disprove the presence of the supernatural. So if you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, then you have to believe what he says about himself. Not doing so would be like the Israelites on the side of that mountain looking at Goliath and saying, well, I can smell him. I can see him. I can hear him. I can see the effects of his presence around me. But he's not really there. It's brilliant on the part of Satan to make people think that. C.S. Lewis is very vocal about it, right? He says there's this kind of two equally dangerous things. Not believing in Satan and, and attributing everything to him. You know, it, it's, it's like closing our eyes and going, yeah, well, we can see, the, pre- we can see the, the influence, but we refuse to believe in him and his demons. That's naive. The Israelites were seeing and hearing and they knew he was real. You see, combat always follows the cause and the enemy is very, very real. But thirdly, the war is already won. You know, I've, I've felt like we've, I've been kind of not kind of dragging you down. Oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. I don't want to leave. Let's just carry on in here. Can somebody go and do a call out? Let's get pizza. This feels safe. I don't want to go. This is where we kind of stop and we shoot right back up because the war is already won. Ephesians 4 verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of our might. No, his might, his might, his might, the strength of his might. We are called to go to combat, but we go with tremendous firepower. We go with unbelievable strength under us, over us. Brad, I love the quote you read out this morning. Under us, over us, to our right, to our left, around us. It's like you're running at the enemy, but the, but the power that vastly outpowers the enemy you are running at is going all around us. Imagine the confidence that you have. You see, David was offered by King Saul his armor. He said, take my armor. And, and he puts the armor on David. And David goes, man, I can't even move in this. And that's such a strong picture of the way that we're telling ourselves. You know, I can deal with this myself. I, I can put on my own armor. I can face the enemy in my own strength and in my own might and in my own skill. And, and the things that I've read and the places that I go to and the conferences that I attend, I have, I'm strong in, what, in this. And, and then God is saying, no, you don't need to be strong. I was strong for you. And David takes the armor off. And he says, I can't move. And he goes just in what he has which was, as it turns out, far more powerful than anything that Saul could give him. See, nothing human gives us what we need. We try to make it fit and it doesn't work, it fails. And if I'm truly honest with myself over the last year, that is a testimony of myself. Trying to, trying to figure out life and in your own strength, in your own gifting, in your own skill set, and you just can't do it. And at some point, it hits you. And you have to take all that off and go, okay, Lord, I submit to you. What do you want for me? What we have is vastly superior to the enemy. I can't even give justice. 
to the difference and the contrast in the power that is available to you and the power that Satan has in this world. He might feel and look and smell and hear powerful. Can I just tell you, I I can't give it justice as to what resides in you if you're a Christian. But God does require something of us. The firepower belongs to God. But what he does require of us is to do what David did. What David did, and you can read it in 1 Samuel 17 verse 48. Let me, let me read this. Just, to, just picture it. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line and the Philistine. David ran. He ran. He was like, there's the enemy. And he started running at him. You see, the power that God has available to us comes as we step out. You see, David reminds Saul, he said, look, I don't need all this stuff that you're giving me because I've already had my training. I know this about God. I know what he's capable of. I used to fight bears. I used to fight lions. This this dude is nothing compared to my God. You see, David ran, not completely naive. In fact, the opposite. He ran in the full knowledge of who his God was. He ran with the armor of the sense of the belt of truth, the truth being God and his power available to him. He didn't run alone. He went with the knowledge that God was running with him and before him and around him. He was powerful because God was powerful. And the power and the strength comes as we step out. David charged Goliath before he was dead. He didn't wait for God to move and then move with him. He started running in the direction that he knew God had called him to. Friends, what is it that God has called you to within the greater cause? Are you running to it? Are you waiting for God to do something before you step out and do it? Are you running? Because there's a principle in the Bible that God joins in with momentum. This is an incredible story in 1 Samuel 14 when Jonathan and his armor bearer are kind of sat around one day. They've only got one sword between them. And Jonathan comes up with this plan. And the plan basically, let's go, let's go attack some Philistines. And this rubbish, his, his plan's rubbish. Strategically, it's awful. I mean, he's not pointing at PowerPoints and presentations and shifting things around tables. We'll do this. He says, let's just climb a mountain. And it says this, read it, 1 Samuel 14, it might be that God will join in with us today. He might not. But at least we're doing something. It might be that God gives us victory. Like I would want the Archangel Gabriel to deliver that to me on some days. Jonathan says, let's go, let's do it. Here's our cause. Let's do it. What's your cause? You see, Jonathan climbs up the side of the mountain. The armor bearer must have had incredible faith in Jonathan. But something very intriguing happens. See, God doesn't turn up. In fact, it says that Jonathan has to kill many men before the ground shook and God turns up. You see, God joins in with momentum. Are you in momentum towards the cause that God has called you to? Or are you waiting for God to send the earthquake before running and joining him? Where does this knowledge come from? Because sometimes we feel like God has withdrawn and like like Saul is sat in his tent behind the battle lines 
like this, hoping that we don't call on his help. Like, God, where are you? And sometimes we feel like God has withdrawn and we're by ourselves. Why can't you just send the earthquake ahead of me, God? He says, run. Run at it. Start. Go for it. Under the cause of Jesus Christ, go for it. You, I placed you in a church with advisors and counselors around you, support systems. You can bounce ideas, but run. Don't just sit and wait. Let's run. Church, let's run for the cause of Jesus Christ. Let's sign up for Life Tracks. Let's join a community group. Let's find a way that we can actually uh, increase in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, so that when we do run, we're not feeling like we're running by ourselves. It's, it's easy for us to complain about our lack of understanding or to complain about a lack of presence of God or if only God would do this and why am I feeling that? Whereas I get a sense that God is saying, you know, you wouldn't feel all these things if you just got up and moved. If you joined, if you read, if you meditated, if you prayed, if you did these things, not on your own strength, but because of your love for Jesus Christ and what he did, then he said, I will cause the earth to shake. In Isaiah 9, Christmas passage, Jesus is referred to as a mighty God. I preached on this a few years ago at Christmas. And I just want to finish with this picture for you. This is who you're running with. Mighty God. You see, at the time when this prophecy through Isaiah came to Israel, they were surrounded on every side by their, by their, uh, by their enemies. They were feeling helpless and hopeless. And God reminds them through the prophet, he said, listen, I will send to you mighty God, wonderful counselor. The word mighty God is a beautiful Hebrewic word. First of all, there's El, which means name or title. And, and then there's this, this word called Gibor, G-I-B-B-O-R. And what it means is, is hero. So basically what Isaiah is saying is Jesus is going to be the God hero. He is going to be your champion. He's going to be the David that runs and beats the Goliath you. I I don't call you to do that. He says, Jesus is already going to do that for you. You see, David was Israel's Gibor, their champion. He went to war for them. He secured the fight for them. He went in in the power and the knowledge that God had given of himself. And he secured the victory. And as a result, Israel ran in confidence because of what David did. Because as soon as David killed Goliath, Israel stood up on their feet, cheered and ran towards the Philistines. Because they gained strength in the power, not in their own power, but in the power of David. And exactly the same way, Jesus, when he faced the enemy, when he died on the cross, when he took your sin for which you should be punished and and my sin for which I should be punished, and he beat the ultimate thing, which was death and Satan himself, then we, like the Israelites, can rise up because he is our God hero. He is our champion. And we can run. We can run in the shadow of the victory that he has already secured for us, not the victory we're trying to gain for ourselves. We should gain confidence from the truth that Jesus is our God hero. He left his kingdom for you and for me to absorb the pain of the sin that you and I committed. The Bible says he became a curse on the cross to take the sin that 
you and I deserve to be punished for was placed upon Jesus and it died with him. He stretched out his hands and he takes your death. He placed himself in front of Goliath. But secured a greater victory. Why did he do that? In Hebrews 12 and verse 2 it said, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Death, where is your victory? Because we got ours, and his name is Jesus. You see, he rose again. He conquered Satan's sin and death. He disarmed all the principalities and authorities that come against you daily. And then he says, you go in that strength. Go in that knowledge that wherever you go, you are surrounded with the victory. Are you going to have to fight? Absolutely. Just like Jonathan and David. But the price has been paid. The debt has been canceled. The charges have been nullified. Go in the strength of that. In the strength of our God hero. There is no accusation against you. He secured the victory. I had this really weird kind of picture in my mind as I was writing this. Of, of I, Sometimes I watch, and you can, you can judge me. I, I, that's okay. But sometimes I watch UFC. Now, before you send me long emails, I, just, just get past that. I just watch this and go, these guys are nuts. But then there's sometimes a guy gets in there, and he's just so confident. It's almost like he's already gained the victory. And then I place myself and I think, what would I be feeling right now? Looking at this slobbering animal on the other side of the ring, whose all his desire and intent is just to get and destroy me. What would I be feeling like? I don't know how quick you could run around that ring, but I would be breaking that record. I'd be climbing and running out of that ring so fast. But then I thought, what would happen if you got into the ring with the world champion of champions? The one who cannot be beaten. And everybody knows he cannot be beaten. That everybody knows he has the power and the champion and the spirit. and Because he's already been there and done it. What would it feel like if I kind of literally stood in the shadow of him? Man, I'd be like, bring it on. This is going to be interesting. This is going to be good. You see, we run in the shadow of the victory. That Jesus already has gained. The fight is not yours, friends. And as we go through in a few weeks' time, as we dig in to the armor of God, you will see that these armor that has been given to you is just that. It's a gift. It's not something that you gain for yourself. It's been given to you. All we need to do is submit to that. We need to ask for forgiveness and repent towards that. And say, God, I am sorry I've been trying to do this in my own strength. And you genuinely start looking at yourself and losing faith in yourself. So you place faith in Jesus, the God hero. His cause was you. His cause was me. His cause was doing the Father's will. His combat mission was the cross. And then through the cross, he gives us the weapons that belong to him. Righteousness, truth. feet shod in the, in, the, in the gospel of peace. It's not our skill. It's not our ability. It's His. And I want to leave you for a few weeks with this, with this thought. David went and he ran in the knowledge 
of God. Jonathan fought and climbed in the knowledge of his God. And as we go through this 21 days for the city, each day or most days is a call to action, a a CTA. Can I tell you that that call to action is something practical for you to do that day? But you do not go in your own strength. You do not go in your own ability. You go in the ability that God got for you through the cross. But you need to go. But go in the knowledge of Him. And how do you get that knowledge of Him? Through this. Putting time aside to meditate and read and study and thank Him and prayer. Soak in this and the the knowledge of the strength of the champion that runs before you will grow and increase. And then something strange happens. Others will want to run with you. They'll grab you like the prophet says by your sleeve and say, take me with you for God is with you. People will start noticing. People will want what you have. And just like David, I have this wonderful image in my mind of him running just towards the enemy and this horde of an army running behind him. People will want to run with you because Jesus is with you. Let's be a church which runs with the knowledge that Jesus is with you. I think that would be a good church. Amen? Let's pray.